You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Hallis the Mac, Chicago Bears history by the decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and historian Matt Winner. Matt, welcome to the 1940s. Some said we would never get here, Jeff, but here we are, and I'm very excited to hear about all of the Bears' success during this decade. Well, I mean, it's almost like you want to stay in the 1940s forever as a Bears fan, but the 1940s have a lot of negative things about it that we'll certainly get to, and I'm going to let you start off uh, with U.S. history. But first, I want to do my cocktail of the decade. And Is there the gin 1940s, in this one? There's no gin in this one. I had to go away from the gin drinks because you know we've got to branch out to more of our listeners that maybe don't partake in gin quite as much as you do. But I found one called uh, the Sidecar, and this actually dates back to the invention of it, dates back to World War I. But like a lot of these drinks, they take a little time to get popular. And by the 40s, this drink was pretty popular. It it, uh, was named after one of those sidecars in the motorcycles that were driven around in World War I. Um, mm, okay. and so I think that's kind of funny. This is a, it's actually a really simple drink and it's quite tasty. I've made this drink and some variants of it, but really all you need is cognac, an orange liqueur and some lemon juice. Obviously fresh squeezed lemon juice would be preferable. And I think that you can easily swap out bourbon, uh, for cognac. You can put bourbon in place of the cognac. And if you're going to use an orange liqueur like Grand Marnier, which is made with cognac, you're still getting that kind of that cognac element in it anyway. So I, I think that's a much more accessible way to do it. It's an easy ratio, two shots of your bourbon or your cognac, one shot of your Grand Marnier, any kind of orange liqueur, and then one shot of lemon juice. And you want to shake that up, strain it into a cocktail glass, and then garnish with an orange wedge if you have that around. It's a really nice drink that has a lot of kick to it, uh, but it's got a nice orange element. It's not overly sweet because you're not adding a lot of sugar. You're basically getting the sweetness from the orange liqueur, and then the lemon juice gives it an acidity to it. And so it's actually a really nice drink to have. Jeff, how many viewers do you think we have that pause the podcast right here and just have to go test out that drink you just told people? I think that's actually a great way to approach these episodes is that you make yourself one of these cocktails that uh, we describe up at the top, and then you drink it while you're listening to Bear's History to really set the mood for yourself. So that's an excellent opportunity for anybody to hit pause, maybe rewind, and uh, write down those dr- those ingredients again and go ahead and make that drink. Absolutely great idea. So, the more you drink, the better we will sound, people. I think the more that's, you enjoy yourselves. I have uh, been told that before. Let's, let's get in. I, we wanted to swap this. Normally I talk about Bears history first, but we've got this world event that is obviously dominating everything. So I want you to start off with U.S. history slash world history of the 1940s. Obviously, the biggest event of the 40s is World War II. Now, it actually starts in 1939. Germany invades Poland, and that kicks off the war. And the United States wants to stay out of it. World War I was seen as kind of a needless war. And so most Americans did not want to get involved in this war. And in fact, in 1940, that's part of FDR's platform for re-election is keeping us out of this, you know, world war. Uh, but eventually, you know, Pearl Harbor happens and then we declare war on Japan, Germany declares war on us, and we're just, we're, we're in this war now. And it's, and everyone knows how big World War II is. And I don't think we need to get too much into the technical 
parts of this war. We've got the, you know, the big events. You've got D-Day. You've got us dropping two atomic bombs. We're fighting on two fronts, fighting the Japanese, and then we're fighting the Germans. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have maybe a grandfather or a great-grandfather that fought in this war. And it just it touched everyone's life, Jeff. If obviously, some people were fighting. The people back home, they were producing goods for the war. People were rationing. It, this was total commitment by Americans to win this war once we were in it. And you just don't really see that sort of thing anymore. And I think that's that's one of the most interesting parts about this war is everyone had to be all in. Once the war is done, then we kind of we get to restart our lives again. There's not a whole lot of cultural advancement during this time because half of the decade is we're at war. But uh, a house at the start costs you about 4000 at the start of the 40s. By the end of the 40s, it's about 7000 Casablanca came out during that time, famous movie. In the late 40s, you got Jackie Robinson debuting for the Major League Baseball, uh, breaking the color barrier. Tupperware gets invented during this time and bought and sold. You got the United Nations. You have NATO get developed. First NASCAR race. I'm not particularly excited about that, but maybe some of our <laughs> listeners would be. Yeah, I don't know what the overlap is, but uh, yeah, put me down for not excited either. What I am excited for is the NBA is created. Because you know how much I love the NBA, and so that gets yep. its start. Clothing during this time, not a whole lot of advancements, especially during the war, Jeff. People are very practical. A lot of the new materials have to go towards the war effort, and so people are wearing very plain clothing. But once the war is over, you start to see people really want to express themselves and you start to see a lot more colors, a lot more maybe trendy radical styles than we were seeing before. Big stars of the day, Jeff, you got Clark Gable, you got Bob Hope, you got Humphrey Bogart, you got Abbott and Costello. They, we still had them in the 30s. And it's just it's a fascinating decade, and I just wanted to give the bare bones of it. Otherwise, I would risk talking all day about it. And a huge yeah, but women in the workforce uh, definitely stepping up. And then when the war is over, that kind of they go back to not being in the workforce, or is there kind of a permanent bump from from that? Well, for some of the women, yeah, but when, there's a transition period when most of those men do come back, and you move into the fifties, and things kind of revert back a little bit into women staying out of the workforce. Partly the reason for this, Jeff, is in the fifties. Our economy, late 40s and 50s, our economy booms. There really only needs to be one person in the workforce because that's just how good things are. And But yeah, in, in the 60s and 70s, that women in the workforce movement starts to come back. But, uh, you know, once we get out of World War II, it, it becomes one of the most kind of prosperous times for America in our history from the after World War II all the way to probably the early 60s. And... Two, I, I know we'll touch we'll touch on this quite a bit with this decade. Uh, you got guys like Ted Williams, one of my favorite baseball players of all time. He goes over and serves one way or another in World War II, and a lot of the athletes are going to talk about, you know, serve, and that just that blows my mind. I, I I try and picture LeBron James going over to serve in Afghanistan, and it just it just doesn't make any sense. But yet here were these huge. Uh, whether baseball or football stars or movie stars even. And granted, most of them weren't necessarily fighting, but they were still serving their country. And I just think that's a really cool part of this decade. Well, let's, you know, let's just start there. Uh, again, this is kind of my interesting Bears trivia for the decade. And so we'll just start there. But over 40 Bears players served in the armed forces during World War II. Uh, Incredible, right? And that includes owner and coach George Hallis. So Hallis was in the Navy, you know, famously was stateside during World War One, and kind of led the football team to victory in the Rose Bowl. That was kind of his World War One experience. And so when World War Two came around, he had always told himself if he had ever had a chance to actually get into combat or serve in some way he would do it even though he would have been out of the navy and so world war ii comes around and he signs back up and he uh, leaves the team uh, to some assistant coaches and so during world war ii he's welfare and recreation officer for the seventh fleet in the pacific ocean and so he's away from the team during this time and how old is he at this time oh he would be probably in his late 40s right 
That's unbelievable. Guy in his late 40s would sign up for that. But that's a different time. Yeah, absolutely. And so, it, it you know, interestingly enough, uh, you know, he was uh, later awarded a Distinguished Citizens Award, the highest honor that the Navy uh, can give to a civilian. And so because of all the things that he was doing. So Ed McCaskey, who married Virginia, Hallis's daughter, he served... He served for the Army during the war and won a Bronze Star for combat infantry. So uh, interesting there. And then of the players, you know, mentioned more than 40, but Hall of Famers like Danny Fortman, who we mentioned on the 30s podcast, Sid Luckman, George McAfee, Joe Steidahar, all served. Uh, Luckman, and again, we're gonna, we'll talk about Luckman later. Luckman was stationed stateside, so he was actually playing on the weekends, which I find kind of weird. But then when Normandy invasion came, Luckman was actually... He was on a transport ferrying troops back and forth from from Britain to France. And so he was part of the Normandy invasion. Sid Luckman. That is just that is just nuts. He's he's arguably the best quarterback of the decade along with Sammy Baugh, but he's putting he's putting his life on the line, Jeff. He's taking Absolutely. troops across the channel. It's, it's just it blows my mind that that happened. There is only one player that lost his life uh, during World War II, a quarterback by the name of Young Busey. He was killed in the Philippines on January 7th, 1945. So uh, only one Bears player lost their life. Uh, and then Hallis wanted to make sure that he was helping servicemen after the war. And so he created a preseason benefit game. And it actually lasted for 25 years. Hallis met with and uh, talked to General Dwight D. Eisenhower to kind of get approval and some uh, publicity uh, going for it. And this was this game was played at Wrigley Field in 1946 and continued to, to do that. He raised over a million dollars uh, for, for this effort. So really cool stuff. Uh, you know, obviously this war was important to everyone, uh, but a lot of Bears history is intertwined with this. And so as we get into the recap of the decade, I just have to reiterate that the Bears were absolutely phenomenal in the 1940s. They compile a record of 81-26-3. So so that's a 75% winning percentage, which is just crazy, right? So they win their division five times in the 40s, and they win four championships. So they go 4-1 and one in the championship games. So in 19... Let me go the other way. So in 1946, they win 24-14. Uh, in 1943, uh, they beat Washington 41-21. In 1941... They beat the Giants 37-9. You know, not exactly a very close game either. But in 1940, they beat Washington 73-0. to <laughs> So just... That's, that's a Madden score. That's it's, a, yeah, that's it's a, a Madden on score. rookie where you're just trying to, like, run it up to, like, get some sort of achievement unlocked or something. I, there, it's going to come up multiple times in this podcast, but 73-0, to absolutely crazy. Uh, and so when you, when you actually kind of dig into this, you know, the Bears are really dominant during this this phase for a couple of reasons. One, I think, is truly fantastic personnel decisions by George Hallis. He really knocks it out of the park by building a lot of talent and through some means that, like, the rest of the owners and the league just don't understand yet. And then one of those decisions is getting Sid Luckman, which we talked about on the last podcast. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll talk more about Luckman uh, here later in the show. And then the third element is that is that Hallis partnered with Clark Shaughnessy, and he brought in the T formation to the NFL. And he basically creates this perfect personnel for this formation, invests a lot of time and energy teaching Luckman how to run this T formation. Everyone else at the time is running a single wing. So... The single wing looks so weird. I would invite anyone listening to this to look up what the single wing looks like because it won't look like real football to you. Uh, but basically, if I can describe it simply, it's an unbalanced line where you've got four linemen to the right of the center and two linemen to the left of the center. The quarterback lines up behind the right tackle at like a short distance, almost like a pistol type uh, distance. And then the fullback lines up between the center and the right guard, the tailback lines up between the center and the left guard, and then there's a wing back that starts um, off to the right, again, on that unbalanced line. So you have three players that start the play 
somewhere to the left of center and then everybody else is to the right of center. It's a really weird looking formation viewing from the lens of modern football, but that's what everybody ran. And most of the plays were running plays and, you know, passing didn't become really prevalent until some of the rules loosened up in the early 30s. So the T formation, here's here's kind of how you want to envision the T formation. You've got a double tight end formation. So you've got your guard, tackle, and tight end to the right, guard, tackle, tight end to the left. And then you've got the quarterback under center, and then you have three backs in the backfield in a straight line. So if you drew a line from the quarterback to the three backs, you would draw basically an upside-down T. Or if you were on the defense looking at it, you would see the line from the quarterback to the backs as a T, right? So that's where how it's got its name. Uh, Clark Shaughnessy was the coach of the University of Chicago football team back when they had a football team. And so Hallis and him start talking. They try to bring it into the NFL. Hallis is really excited about this, but, you know, Luckman in college did not run this. And so Hallis actually brings on the University of Chicago's quarterback to teach Luckman. It's a guy by the name of Solly Sherman. So Sherman teaches Luckman how to run this thing. Luckman's obviously, uh, you know, very talented. And so in 1939, it's basically a lot of trial and error and learning how to run this offense, and it doesn't really get going. And then in 1940, they get the right personnel, and all of the practice starts to pay off. And so Luckman, in his book that was written in 1949, so he states that several hundred plays in the Chicago playbook, which I think is probably quite large for the time, gave him a thousand options to run plays because he could do man in motion, a lot of stuff we see today. There was more complicated blocking schemes and then multiple passing options, which were not something that was normal from the single T era. And so what, when this all kind of creates this huge explosion in the NFL, Shaughnessy leaves University of Chicago for Stanford for the 1940 season. Shaughnessy takes that team to an undefeated season. He's 10-0 and wins the Rose Bowl over Nebraska. And Nebraska was like heavily favored. Everybody thought Nebraska was going to blow them out. And the opposite happens. So Shaughnessy takes this offense and absolutely kills with it in 1940. Well, a couple weeks later, the Bears use that same offense to beat down Washington 73 to nothing. Everything just started clicking for them at the same time. And so all of a sudden, the T formation catches fire and becomes the most popular formation in football. It's basically the foundation of modern offense because of all of the different pre-snap things that you can do. It's really cool that this offense develops for Bears fans because it happens in University of Chicago coming over to the Chicago Bears and Sid Luckman being the guy that brings the NFL into a more modern offense. So I just think that's really cool. So a franchise, a franchise that is not usually known for offensive innovation was actually one of the most important teams for offensive innovation when it comes to this T formation. Like This sounds like a pivotal moment in the history of the NFL, this formation. Yeah, no, it's absolutely pivotal. And I mean, you have to think that the Bears are 20 years old at this time. So their identity was as an offensive juggernaut for a long time, right? So the first half of their existence, it's more about offense than it is about defense. So the, the 63 championship, obviously we'll get to that in a couple episodes, that's more of a dominating defensive championship. But here you've got offensive innovation that really drove what was happening. So uh, kind of give the Hallis update. Hallis coaches in 1940 and 1941, signs up for that World War II uh, tour of duty. And so he's a co-coach in 42, but then he, he leaves for the for the Navy. Bronco Nagurski, our old friend, comes back in 43 while Hallis is away. There's uh, kind of some correspondence between Hallis and his coaches to try to get Bronco back uh, because they lost the 42 title. And Hallis really felt like they were just missing that fullback element that Bronco brought. Luke Johnsos, we talked about him mm-hmm. last time. He takes over as co-head coach. And Hunk Anderson is the other co-head coach, which great nickname. And those two coach for a couple years and they win the 43 title. Hallis comes back in 46, wins that final championship in the 40s, and then he starts his third 10-year increment of being the head coach of the Chicago Bears. The NFL at the time undergoes a little bit of change. There's some stability. Ten teams in 1940, same thing in 1949, but you know some of the teams change. I think the most interesting thing to note is that in 1943, 
because of the war, the Steelers and the Eagles actually combine for one season. They're called the Steagles. Oh, I've heard about that. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, I think it's a really kind of fun little piece of trivia. Uh, The next year, the Cardinals and the Steelers combine forces. Uh, And I don't know that they had a fun nickname like the Steagles, certainly not as good as the Steagles. In 1945, the Boston Yanks and the Brooklyn well, they were the Brooklyn Tigers, used to be the Brooklyn Dodgers. They have a rare New York-Boston cooperation where they become a combined team. So you have three years where you have one team that's uh, actually two teams combined because of all the people that were serving in World War II. How close was the NFL to really struggling during this time with World War II going on? Do you know whether there ever talks of postponing the season or canceling it? Or was, this, or was it felt that football was really important to keep going for the people? I don't know that they made those decisions on those grounds, but obviously they felt like they could still make some money and keep the league afloat. And there was the one year, 43, where it goes down to eight teams, but for the most part, they're able to keep the teams going. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of players that are playing, so it's it's not nearly as competitive. You're playing with a lot of guys that are maybe a little bit too old or maybe too broken to go over to World War II, but somehow play some football. Mm-hmm. But it's so it's not as competitive, but I think it's. I think it was probably very important for the league to try to keep going for their own right because if you close down shop, it's hard to restart a league, especially one that is established but not necessarily the juggernaut that it is today. So let's talk about the key players from this era. And a couple of players that we covered last time that I think are really important for the 40s, so we just want to make sure that we know that they're still there. So obviously you talked about Bronco coming back for that 43 season. That's a really fun story in and of himself. Danny Fortman, he plays a key role until he leaves for World War II. And then Joe Steidahar, his line mate, he plays on a lot of those championship teams as well. And so those guys are still there. Uh, But we've got a lot of other guys that we want to get to. And I want to start with another star on that line that played next to Steidahar and Danny Fortman. And that's George Musso. What can you tell me about him? What do you think George Musso's nickname was, Jeff? Mongo. Good guess. Moose. Do you think when <laughs> that's when, way better. When did chance like that start, do you think? Do you think the crowd would if granted he's a lineman, so he's not getting the ball much, but do you think they ever had a Moose chant at a Bears game in the forties? I like to think they did, but I don't know. George Musso, Jeff, six two, two seventy. That's big. That's that's yes, big he's a now. Big dude. That's that's a big person now. He's very big for the area. He elected to the Hall of Fame in nineteen eighty two. Won four championships. Uh, Jeff, my favorite thing about him, I have a lot of favorite things about him. He looks like John Goodman to me. All the pictures I saw, I think he looks like actor John Goodman. So I just <laughs> I envision this John Goodman guy, just pancaking guys, all the 40s, Hall of Famer. I'm sure it was, a, a, I know you appreciate offensive line play. And so I bet he was really fun to watch. A couple of fun things about him in college. He played against both Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford. And so later in his life, he would claim to be the only football player to ever play against two U.S. presidents. Mm. And he goes to this small college, and Hallis at first doesn't think too highly of him. In fact, he pays him about half of what the average salary was at the time because he just didn't think this guy would stick. And at first, Musso is bad. He's really bad. He's not playing well. He's afraid he's going to get cut. Hallis threatens to cut him. And Bronco and Red Grange kind of take him under his wing, and they try and help coach him up, make him feel good, and then he starts playing well. Hallis starts paying him, and then from there, he becomes one of the best players of the decade, one of the best linemen. He's the first NFLer to be named All-Pro at two different spots, guard and tackle. And probably, if not my favorite thing about him, forget the John Goodman thing. (laughs) He was named team captain his last nine seasons of the Monsters of the Midway. And so I'm I'm so glad I learned about this guy because to me, holy cow, he's team captain during this time when the Bears were having all the success. And a lot of the players would talk about, yeah, Hallis would let – for big games, Hallis wanted Musso to talk. Like, Musso would get everyone fired up. I don't know how many Bears fans would be familiar with George Musso, but now after learning about him, he's got to be one of my favorite Bears of the decade. And honestly, just I, I, I love this guy. I, just, I love what he brought to the table, Jeff. I, I love how big he was, and I love that his nickname was obviously 
derive from his last name, but it like totally fits because he's this big hulking presence. So when those nicknames like that work, they're fantastic. But yeah, fantastic guy. But you got another George. Actually, you have three Georges. But the second George on your list is George Wilson. What can you tell me about him? He's an end. Uh, what we would consider a receiver today. He puts up really good numbers for the time. I, his career numbers are: he's got over a hundred catches, over a thousand yards, fifteen touchdowns. It doesn't sound like that, but Jeff, for the time. This is still an era where they start to throw the ball a little more, but they're not throwing it with regularity like they are today. He's a three-time All-Star, one-time All-Pro. Again, he's on these Bears championship teams. He's a great player. I find his coaching career to be more interesting. And so I, I know it's not the 40s with the Bears, but after he's done, I think he's done in the mid to late 40s, he assists the Bears for a couple years, and then he moves on to a coaching gig with the Lions. He eventually becomes the head coach of the, the Detroit Lions, his first year wins the championship. You know, he's the coach of the year and he has a lot of success there. Eventually he's made head coach of the expansion team, Miami Dolphins. Now he struggles there. He struggles. His teams do not do well, Jeff, but listen to the people he drafted or acquired during his time there. Okay. Bob Greasy, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, Mercury Morris, Paul Warfield. And so he acquires all these people. Now, granted, he's not around to, to, to see it through. He gets fired, and someone he had on the staff replaces him as head coach of the Miami Dolphins. And, of course, that is going to be Don Shula, the all-time NFL wins leader. George Wilson, he's, he's kind of upset about this. Like He felt he got a bad deal with the Dolphins. Like They were ready just to take over the league. He had all these... Great players. The cupboard was full, and he kind of resents Shula for a while, but it, eventually they reconcile and they become friendly again. But, you know, as, as, a, as someone who coaches quite a bit, I can totally get where he's coming from there. You know, you suffer through the lean years, and then you want to see the success start to happen. You feel like you've done all this work. You've developed, developed these players, and you want to see it through, and he just didn't get a chance to do that. And so quite quite a coaching career for George Wilson and a lot of the Chicago Bears, a lot of these guys we talked about, they go on to coach. And I just wonder if that's uh, that's that's got to be a compliment to Hallis and attributed to Hallis and what a great coach and probable mentor that he was that so many of his former players go on to be coaches. Yeah, and probably it was part of what he scouted, right? He wanted smart players. I can't believe how many times I come across a description from Hallis that says this guy was really intelligent. This was one of the most intelligent players that I ever coached. And I think that that was probably something that he he was really attracted to. And so it's interesting that Wilson went on to have that kind of success because if you see traditional coaching trees, normally it's a guy that starts off as an assistant coach underneath the head coach and then moves on, and that's the coaching tree. But really for Hallis and his time, most of his coaching tree are these players that he brings along that go on to coach. And so it's interesting to me that that's probably more of Hallis's legacy from the coaching standpoint. As a lot of his players then go on to coach. So that's, that's pretty interesting stuff. So it kind of sounds like George Wilson was the original Tony Dungy. Yes. John Gruden situation, right? Yes. You know, you know how upset that gets me where John Gruden gets better for that. And Dungy built that whole team. I do. And you've met, Tony Dungy. So that makes it just that much more, you know, personal for you. Saw Tony Dungy in the airport once. I was young. I think I was in high school. We were down in Florida on a baseball trip and saw him in the airport, said, Hey, what's up, coach? And he's like, Hey, how you doing? Just you could tell he was just a genuinely nice guy. Like the guy you see on TV, that's real. That's Tony Dungy, as far as I can tell. Kind of amazing. All right, so my first guy, and it's the guy, it's Sid Luckman, right? So Luckman, he is Honestly, he's the premier downfield passer of the era. He's a four-time champion, five-time first-team All-Pro. He wins the league's most valuable player in 1943 with some incredible statistics. Mm -hmm. And I've got he even in 45, where he's you know I don't know you know fighting World War II, he he leads the league in passing yards and touchdowns. Like, unbelievable what what is happening here so luckman's uh year mvp year in 43 i think it's one of the greatest quarterback years of all time he has a 13.9 percent touchdown throw percentage and all right so that's ridiculous he his quarterback rating for that year is 107.5 yeah it's it, it's outrageous it's still it, which in that era is 
you know, it's kind of what you said last time about Babe Ruth hitting 60 and the next closest guy hitting 20 home runs. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what this was. And I, I had some fun with this. I extrapolated Luckman's stats, his percentages from the 43 season, under what that would look like for a quarterback in this era. And so I gave him the same amount of pass attempts that a quarterback in this era would have. And if he did that, you know, 16 starts, all that kind of stuff, he would put up 6,300 yards (laughs) and 80 touchdown passes. (laughs) Oh, man, that is unbelievable. I just, I love those those single season performances where, a bear was just so dominant. They were so good. They were so much better than everyone else. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's that's my favorite stat about Luckman. But another guy that he played with that was one of his weapons would be Bill Osmansky. And so he, he was a fullback. He kind of filled that Bronco role. A pretty successful guy. He was first-team All-Pro in 1939. Made a couple Pro Bowls. Won the championship with the Bears for three three times. Was one of those guys that went off to fight in World War II. He also made the all-1940s decade team by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He led the league in rushing as a rookie. Uh, had a career average uh, yards per carry of 4.8, which is really good. It's actually only behind Gail Sayers and BD Feathers for career rushing average. So, impressive guy. He actually kicked off the scoring of that 73-0 to annihilation that we talked about over Washington in the championship game uh, with a 68-yard touchdown, and he finished the game with 109 yards on 10 runs. And so kind of an amazing uh, you know, stat line right there, but a very cool guy in, a, in and of his own right. Another star from that game, though, George McAfee, and you had do some research on George McAfee. What can you tell me about him? Well, thank you, Jeff. And yeah, he's huge in that 1940s championship game. He's a rookie that year. He's the second overall pick in 1940. And like you mentioned in that game, he had a huge play. And really, he was just getting his feet wet that year. The next year he goes on, he averages 7.3 yards per carry, which is astronomical for that time, has 12 touchdowns, and is just this kind of electric player with the ball in his hands. Uh, Jeff, some of these stats I'm unsure about, but and here's one of them. Supposedly, his career average for punt returns is over 30 yards. It's 31.6 <laughs> average. Now, yeah, can't be beat. No one's touching that, and I I cross-reference a lot of these stats to try and because I would see it, I would say, oh, there's no way that's right. But yeah, everywhere I looked, he has that type of he has those types of numbers, and so. He must have been this electric guy in the highlights I've seen. Yeah, he, he looks fast. He looks quick. And like a lot of these guys, his career gets interrupted. He goes and serves in World War II. And he comes back, and he's, he's a great player for the years that he plays. And he's uh, inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame in 1966. And so a huge, huge part of that line of success for the Bears in the mid to early 40s. Nickname, One Play McAfee. One Play McAfee, you can't. God, the nicknames, Jeff. I'd say I'm a broken record on these nicknames. The NFL current day, they, they need to get their act together with the nicknames. All yeah. the leagues, NFL, NBA, the nicknames today are terrible. we got to have these better nicknames. Just go copy some of these guys' nicknames. The thing I like about McAfee is that he records touchdowns, catching the ball, running the ball, interception returns for touchdowns, like putt returns for touchdowns. He just scores from everywhere. He's a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of combines a lot of really, really interesting aspects. You know, like Devin Hester, he's obviously the greatest return man of all time. McAfee was pretty dang good, right? Like, so it's, it's kind of interesting to, you know, hey, we had a guy like that. And there's another guy that we're going to get to in the 60s that had some pretty good punt return ability too. Mm-hmm. All right, my next guy, Ken Cavanaugh, another one of those weapons for Luckman. I love this guy. I love Ken Cavanaugh. Not a guy that maybe everybody knows about. But he played in, so kind of wide receiver of that era, three-time first-team All-Pro. You know, won, he won three championships with the Bears. He's still in, like, 10th place in receiving yards for franchise history. And get this, he leads the Chicago Bears in touchdown catches. Still does. 50. Yep, that's the, he's the franchise leader in touchdown catches. So, obviously, he goes off to fight World War II. Again, one of those guys that went and did that. But still, comes back, 
leads the NFL in receiving touchdowns twice. He has a 22.4 yards per catch average during his career. That's pretty good. Yeah, so, you know, he played, you know, he's a big player, big-time player, absolutely just really good. But I just love that you still come across, like, Ken Cavanaugh and the record books from the 1940s. And this is before, you know, obviously passing – it's a passing league now, but you know this. This is the 1940s, and this is this just really shows just how much how new and different this was because they're putting up numbers that still aren't being matched. And I know the Bears have a rough offensive history since the 1940s, but still, it's it's pretty amazing. And then my last guy uh, for this decade is Bulldog Turner. Bulldog Turner's given first name is Clyde, but Bulldog is what everybody knows him by. He played from 1940 all the way through 1952, played both ways, a true Iron Man kind of guy. He was a seven-time uh, first-team All-Pro, basically known as the best offensive lineman in franchise history, was also really good on defense. He had 17 interceptions as a defensive lineman, wow. and he recorded four interceptions in championship games. So Close he player. turned it on. Yeah, so he just... He's just an absolute stud. All-time nickname, right? <laughs> uh, named to the Hall of Fame All-Decade team of the 40s. He's a Hall of Famer. He was in the class of 1966. And Hallis retires his number, number 66. So no one has worn that number you know, since that number was retired. So obviously just a great player. But again, Hallis says this is one of those guys that was one of the smartest players he ever coached. And he had a reputation for knowing the responsibility for every single player on every single play. Even though he's never going to take a handoff, he would know what the responsibility of the tailback was on that play. All right, I've got one. We've got one more player. You drew him, even though he's one of my personal favorites. And he also has an amazing nickname, Ed Sprinkle. What can you tell us about him? 6'1", 200, Jeff. He's a pass rusher. Think of him as Richard Dent and Khalil Mack before those guys played. He goes to a small school. They have to drop their varsity sports because of World War II, and so he goes to the Naval Academy for a year, and that's where Hallis finds him. And from that point on, once the Bears get him, he's wreaking havoc on quarterbacks and running backs and just anyone who gets within an arm's length of him for the rest of his career. Hallis calls him the greatest pass rusher I've ever seen. And when George Hallis says that about you, that is high praise. That's about the best you can do. He's nicknamed the Claw, Jeff, for how he would tackle. <laughs> I love it. Jeff, I, I watched the footage. I found actually a decent amount of footage on Ed Sprinkle. And basically, it, uh, there's a couple plays that you would see. It'd be they'd hand off away from him. He would chase them down and basically grab them by the neck and throw them down. Or they'd drop back to pass or some sort of pass, and he would get in. And it, it looked he looked very modern. He's one of the most modern guys I've watched so far, where basically he's getting off the ball quick. He gets around the tackle, and he might strip sack the quarterback. I'm sure they didn't, obviously didn't call it that then. But he, is just, he was just an impact player, and it was really fun to watch him because 6'1", 200, for that time, isn't huge to be playing on the line. It's not small, but it's not big. I think his game was speed, his his game was toughness, his game was anticipation, and his game was also being a little dirty. I watched some of those hits, Jeff. I watched some of those tackles. It did not look pleasant. And two quarterbacks from that time, two of the biggest quarterbacks, Sammy Baugh, Wyatt Tittle. Wyatt Tittle said the quarterbacks would look only with one eye for the receivers that kept the other eye on Sprinkle. And Sammy Baugh may be known as the best quarterback of that time, although I think we might disagree with Sid Luckman, but he said Ed was the toughest defensive end I ever played against. He's on the all-decade team for the 1940s, and he just got elected to the Hall of Fame in January. And so he will be inducted hopefully at some point this summer. And I just I thought it was one of the coolest things to learn about for him, and I'm, it was really special to hear that. He had just been elected to the Hall of Fame because I did not catch that news when it came out. And I did—I honestly did not know who he was. Yeah, I was celebrating that news. He's been one of my favorites for a while and just 
think it's really cool that he and Jimbo Covert uh, mm-hmm. are going into the Hall of Fame via senior committee votes for the special 100-year anniversary of the NFL Hall of Fame class. So very cool that the Bears added two more to their historic run of Hall of Famers. But really happy that that happens to be Ed Sprinkle as one of those two guys because he is totally deserving. He was always on the cusp, and he finally got his due. What's a fun thing so, I left out for him? Anything you had since you love him so much? So one of my favorite stories is that one of his teammates said, hey, I'll give you $5 for every hair that you rip out of that guy's mustache. (laughs) And so the next play, he comes to the sidelines, and he's got his hand closed, and he comes and he starts counting out the number of mustache hairs that he tore off of this guy's face. And so clearly he is a player that his antics would not be accepted in today's game. He would have had to adapt. But at the time, he was known as like this really tough-nosed, hard player on the line of maybe being a dirty player. And so mm-hmm. that might have kept him out of the Hall of Fame you know, on his initial attempt. Oh, really? But I, I'm just totally speculating. But, okay. but now, you know, with enough time, it's like, well, yeah, but he was still like really good. So let's let him in. So. Well, so those are the players that we think are the most important to understand this decade. And so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go through our fun categories. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, Matt, we're back. So let's go through the categories. So let's start off with our favorite or most random best stat of the decade. What'd you come up with? A receiver, Ray McLean, or Ray McLean, I'm not sure how to say his name. 19 catches, 571 yards, an average of 30.1 with eight touchdowns. I looked it up at a bunch of different places, and those appear to be legitimate stats. And so uh, when they're running the T formation, they just must have these these hitters to go to him where he has super long touchdowns. And I don't think that's a stat you'll see reproduced today. 30.1 average on those catches. And uh, just digging into a little bit more on this McLean guy, he coached, as a lot of these Bears have that we talked about, and he becomes the head coach of the Packers, and he gets replaced by a guy named Vince Lombardi. So <laughs> one guy gets replaced by Don Schiller, yeah, one guy gets replaced by Vince Lombardi. Interesting. That's uh... – yeah, that's like this guy we didn't talk about. And just to mention that there's because the 1940s Bears are so successful, you could keep talking about some of these players. Tough but, to choose you know, from. Just at some point, you, yeah. So we we covered what we thought were the the most relevant. But my favorite stat for the decade, and it's really just comes down to that 73 to nothing annihilation. But ten different players scored a touchdown in that game. Mm. Mm-hmm. And not only that, which is like crazy enough. But five different players kicked an extra point. <laughs> <laughs> so you think they were and they were bored because they were up so much? And they're I, like, hey, why don't, why don't you go try one? All right. So I, I'm just going to go through this. Okay. So Bill Osmanski, 68-yard rush. Sid Luckman, one-yard rush. Joe Maniachi, 42-yard rush. Rush. Ken Kavanaugh, 30-yard catch. Hampton Poole, pick six. Ray Nolting, 23-yard rush. George McAfee, pick six. Bulldog Turner, pick six. Harry Clark, 44-yard run. And then Gary Famigletti, two-yard run. 
And then Harry Clark with the 11th touchdown. He's the first one to score it separate. And then you've got Jack Manders, Bob Snyder, Phil Mart- Martinovich, Dick Plasman, and Joe Steidahar with extra point kicks. Really? So Joe Steidahar, the Hall of Fame tackle, kicks the like sixth extra point or fifth extra point, right? And then Solly Sherman, our old backup quarterback that taught Luckman how to do the T formation, he has a conversion pass that he gets in on the act. So you have, I think that they absolutely at some point said, we, let's just get as many guys to score as we possibly can. So I, I just awesome. think that that's absolutely crazy. And then honorable mention, same game, Bears intercept Washington eight times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's just a, that's just a silly stat in its own right. Next category, best player of the decade. Who you got? I got to go with Sid Luckman, Jeff. He's the quarterback when quarterbacks start to really mean something. Five-time All-Pro. And you already mentioned before his 1943 season. Jeff, 107 QB rating. That's unheard of. That's pretty tough to do today. Like that, that You're not going to see a lot of quarterbacks get that high today. Certainly not for the Bears recently. And <laughs> So I, I think the best player, it just has to be. It has to be Sid Luckman. I think you can make a case for Bulldog Turner. Because he racks up, he he plays from you know the entire decade. He plays from forty to fifty-two. Mm-hmm. He has seven first-team All Pros. He's absolutely known as one of the best offensive linemen in franchise history. So I think you can make the case, but I think it has to be Luckman. I think if you were really trying hard to say it wasn't Luckman, you'd have to say like, well, you know, it's the system, and you know, he just happened to be in the right place in the right time. Yeah, so what? You know, so is Tom Brady. You know, like, give me a break, right? So I think that I think it has to be Luckman, but I don't think that he wins this next category for me, and that is most exciting player. Do you have somebody different? Well, it's really hard not to go with Luckman all the time since he is such an integral part of this decade in Bears history. But for most exciting player, after the clips I saw, I'm going Ed Sprinkle. Okay, I, all right, not who I have. I don't know how much people would appreciate defense back then, but I know today I love watching Khalil Mack. When the Bears are on defense, he's pretty much the guy I watch all the time. I just like to see him try and, you know, if it's a speed rush or a move he's going to do, I like to see, okay, he's getting double tier. And so I think if you transport me back then, my eyes are on Ed Sprinkle all the time because, number one, I want to see him rush the passer, but number two – I kind of want to see him take someone's head off. And so I think he <laughs> might be the most exciting player of that decade. All right. I Well, that's great. He's going to be my answer here in a minute. But George McAfee, to me, he's the most exciting player because mm-hmm. he just reminds me of like, well, he's basically Devin Hester when he lines up for a punt return. And, oh, by the way, he's a really good corner. And so he's, you know, he's basically like Peanut Tillman when he's playing corner and oh yeah by the way he's like a really legitimately good offensive weapon so i mean is this guy like Tariq cohen with devin hester with peanut tillman like th- this guy just sounds like kind of the all-around absolute stud and so for me i, I think it's got to be mcafee is the most exciting player but can't, can't go wrong with mcafee i love where your head's at and i'm curious if that is also your favorite player or if you're going back to moose for my my favorite player i'm going moose I can't, I can't not go Moose. He's the John Goodman lookalike. He's huge. And I really identify with those guys who are the, the locker room leaders. I, I really appreciate those guys. I view Musso as kind of an Olin Krutz type, but also a little more accomplished. Not that Olin wasn't a great player, but Musso is a Hall of Famer. Musso is the guy that they're winning these championship games He's the one making the speech beforehand. He's the one getting the team fired up. And everyone looked to him, and I think that's why Musso's my favorite guy. My favorite guy is Ed Sprinkle. Of course. A lot of what you talked about is why, but I just think he's a lot of fun. And again, you learn about these guys so far after the fact. And watching some of these NFL clips – I kind of fell in love with just the way that he would talk about his playing style. Like he knows mm. that a lot of that stuff was probably borderline when he played. And then when he's talking <laughs> yeah. about it, when he's talking about it on these clips, you definitely know that he knows that it's not cool anymore. And he just has this grin on his face. That's like, yeah, you know, 
the claw. Yeah, that was pretty effective for me. And it's like, oh, this guy's awesome. I just, so to me, that was my favorite player from this decade. I just, I love learning about him. I think he's fantastic. So best season seems pretty obvious that it's the Luckman 43 season. Do you have anything different? No, it's, it's the Luckman 43 season. And we talked about guys that are so far ahead of the curve. The only guy that even remotely comes close to his passing yards is Sammy Baugh. But Luckman's still got a lot more than Sammy Baugh. And Sammy Baugh throws a ton of interceptions. Yep. So Luckman is just head and shoulders the best quarterback in the league at that time. And it's not even close. And that's what I think annoys me about some of the history of the NFL is that Baugh gets more credit than Luckman does. Yeah. And- you know, growing up, I I'd always hear about Sid Luckman. But he was just always, oh, he was the Bears' best quarterback of all time. Like, he wasn't really put in the same kind of conversation as guys like Sam Ubah or Y.I. Tittle. And when I've learned about all this stuff, that just seems really unfair to Sid Luckman because he was probably the best quarterback for a number of those years. Yeah, absolutely. And the Bears racked up championships. And so it actually probably should require some reevaluation of history amongst people that talk about, you know, the great quarterbacks of the time because they need to be talking about Luckman before they talk about Ball. That's, to me, plain Absolutely. and simple. So best game, honestly, I, I I want this category to be for a specific player, but I can't get past the 73-0 to zero game. And so I just more answered it as, like, this is the best game of the decade because it's amazing. It's I, 73 to nothing. I had this exact same thing, and I kind of cheated. And so for the best game, I put that 1940s defense because – Eight interceptions, Jeff. Eight sure. interceptions. Okay. And how many pick sixes they had. And Three, it's, yeah. It's just that's unheard of. And in a championship game, that level of dominance should not happen. Well, that's and that's what we're talking about. This wasn't 1944 playing the, you know, the Steeler Cardinal conglomerate where there was like just terrible players and they just blew them out. This was the championship. Mm-hmm. So this was a good team. This was a Sammy Baugh led team, right? So this is one of those games where it should be close. You know, Super Bowls or NFC, AFC championship games. It's supposed whatever, to be close. Like those those games should be close. They shouldn't be this lopsided. And so it just kind of adds to this mystique of like 11 touchdowns and no points given up. And, yeah, it's the offense that's obviously doing some crazy stuff, but it's forcing their offense to try to play catch-up with the great Sammy Ball. And the defense is just sitting back and picking the balls off left and right. Eight interceptions. Like, that's crazy. And so I, I just think you just it's so cool. And it's there's just so many elements that kind of coalesce at the right time for this to happen. But it's a really cool thing to, to happen. So it, you did a really good job of making it <laughs> a stat from that game to be the best game. So what about best moments or anything that happened in the de- decade? Did you have anything for that? Well, we're not going too far, Jeff. I, I don't think we've mentioned yet that in that same season that the Bears won 73 to nothing, they had lost to the Redskins earlier that year, 7-3. to three. And so a lot of people were expecting the Redskins to win this game again. And so the Bears were very confident, but the nation, the NFL fans, probably didn't realize what was going to happen here. But less than a minute into the game, Bill Osmanski, as you mentioned, has a 68-yard touchdown run. And so to me, I thought of the 2006 Super Bowl where Devin Hester returns that opening kickoff for a touchdown. That level of excitement, like it had to be if you're a Bears fan, like, we lost to them, but here we go. A minute into the game, Osmanski breaks off this long TD run. And so I compare it to that, only the Bears win this game. Right, they just and keep so on it, scoring. It, it just keep on scoring. It's just big play after big play. And so I try to think of it as a fan. That first TD run must have been so exciting for people to watch or listen on the radio too. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'll, I'll go with your answer um, because, I honestly, I just can't, couldn't get past the 73 to nothing game. So mm. having that be part of it, I think, makes a lot of sense. And a big play. I mean, the 68-yarder is a big play and probably the biggest play from that game. So, all right, let's, let's go on to the GM moves. Let's talk more. Hallis is the GM, the honestly a Hall of Fame GM in my book. So what do you think the best roster move from this decade was? I And it's not even necessarily a move Hallis made, although he had a hand in it, but it's getting Bronco out of retirement. Not that it's necessarily 
a huge move in terms of the quality of the team because Bronco's old and he comes back and he plays well. But I just think it's such a cool move. Like it's it's out of a movie where the the retired gunslinger is coming back for one more fight and the Bears win their third championship of the decade with Bronco back. So that's my best move. So I've got 1940 draft, okay? And I don't really understand. I, I would love to read more about this, of what the Eagles were thinking. But the 1940 draft ends, and Hallis really wants George McAfee. And so he deals two veteran tackles, guys by the name of Russ Thompson and Milt Trost, to the Eagles in exchange for McAfee, right? And obviously, I think this goes to Hallis having a lot of really good linemen. But, like, who's trading the number two overall pick for a couple of linemen in 1940? So, you know, you just – the draft value is just not there yet. But this trade go, this trade goes through. Hallis gets his guy in McAfee. So he's able to acquire McAfee from that draft. Also of note in the 1940 draft, he takes Bulldog Turner with the Bears pick in the first round. Damn. So – in the 1940 draft, he acquires and drafts the only two Hall of Famers from that class. I'd say he hit it pretty big. Pretty nice, pretty nice draft. Then in the second round for the Bears pick, it's actually not the second round, it's the second pick. In, in that era, the second round, only the, the worst five teams got a second rounder, so it's technically a third round draft pick, whatever. So the Bears' next pick, he gets Ken Cavanaugh. Oh, wow. <laughs> So he just keeps killing it, right? Like we already talked about it last time of his his amazing ability to to trade and acquire Luckman, and he had some, uh, some good drafts in the late '30s, and here he's got an amazing draft in 1940. I just think he's just fantastic. Worst roster move? Did you have anything for that? I did not. That's not my okay. forte. Yeah, uh, you don't. You, yeah, you're not going to talk bad about. I'm it. I'm not talking so, bad about how. It's not going to do it. I'm not talking bad about Hallis. I'm just repeating what Hallis has told me through <laughs> his quotes. Okay, so in the after the 1948 season, the Bears trade away Bobby Lane mm. to New York. Wow! And then he plays there for one year, and then he's traded to Detroit. Yes, and he goes on to have a Hall of Fame career and just kind of really just wrecks the Bears during the 50s. And Hal has called it the worst move he's ever made. And we'll talk about more during the 1950s episode, but it's it, basically Hallis has to make a decision between Johnny Lujak or Bobby Lane. He does not like Bobby Lane as a person because Bobby Lane's a big partier and Hallis wants him to follow the rules and he won't. And so a lot of it, I think, is personality driven, mm-hmm. why he trades away. But he picks Lujak. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing from a football perspective because Lou Jack was very good, but Lou Jack is much more hurt than he's been letting on, and he actually walks away from football really early in the 50s, and the Bears just never get back on track. And so there's a little bit of like the curse of Bobby Lane being a guy that he really regrets moving, and the Bears just don't keep the success up from the 40s into the 50s that you might expect. Can't win them all, Jeff. No, you can't. But that's that's definitely the worst move of the decade. What's your favorite what if? It's cheating again, but World War II. Yeah. Bears lose a lot of players. Now, granted, they're able to sustain some of that success. But what if World War II doesn't happen or America doesn't get involved? Hallis doesn't leave for that spell. Does this – the correct me if I'm wrong, but the success kind of fizzles out in the late 40s into the early 50s. Maybe more things are in place for that level of dominance that the Bears had to continue for the next decade. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems weird to say the favorite what if is what if Hitler gets assassinated <laughs> in like 1940. Hitler gets into art school. Yeah. Right, yeah. Hitler gets into art school and so he doesn't pursue fascism. Like, you know, that's a weird thing to talk about in relation to wouldn't that have been great so the Bears could have won more championships because there's, you know – obviously way more serious things that happen as a result of that but like let's just say that there's peace in europe and so it does not impact the the young men that are playing professional football of the era what happens during that run of 1940 to 1946 where the bears win mm-hmm. four championships do they win a fifth do they win a sixth you know and so a lot of those players that went off to to fight were in their prime 
And so you have to imagine mm-hmm. that that early mover advantage that they had with the scheme and with the personnel that they had put together, that they were basically unbeatable and they could have racked up a couple more championships. And so, yeah, it's, you know, obviously it's not at all important in the grand scheme of things, but uh, certainly interesting to think about, well, what if that just didn't happen? How many more championships would they have been able to put together? So, yeah, definitely on the same page with you there. All right, so the next question is, assuming the skill level translates to the modern game, what player from the 40s would you have put on the 2006 Bears to have them win the Super Bowl? And it's obviously Luckman, so you can't pick Luckman. I can't pick Luckman? Uh, no, no, no. Well, I mean, it's not fair because that's obviously the answer, right? So I think it's we the, have to it's go the one only, it's, it's the best answer, Jeff. <laughs> How can you not let me pick it? Well, I don't okay, know. I, I, I guess if I, if I got to pick someone else, I'll pick Ed Sprinkle. Okay, it, give yourself another pass rusher. Give us another pass rusher uh, opposite Agunlier and – Maybe that we could, maybe we can get a little more pressure on Peyton Manning and I don't know. Yeah, you, you really threw me. Can't have Luckman. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just think that Luckman's such the obvious answer because he replaces Grossman, and we've already like talked about it in other episodes. But I think it'd be more interesting if you if you say you can't pick Luckman, and I I kind of go back and forth because I'd love to have another wide receiver, and so I think Ken Cavanaugh would be interesting. Mm-hmm. But I also think mcafee is actually probably a really interesting answer because you could add another corner in that secondary that would give you a lot more flexibility and be able to defend manning's passing attack although yeah obviously the running attack really hurt us in that game where people talk about and then you know he, he could be a threat on offense he kind of is you know redundant with hester and so that's my only uh hesitation of of picking mcafee but I kind of like one of those guys as being a backup to to Luckman if he's if he's not available. Uh, what about the 2020 roster? Who, which player from this decade would you most want on the Bears 2020 roster? Well, I guess I can't pick Luckman, so I'm going to go with George McAfee. You already mentioned a lot of things earlier about how this guy is the Swiss Army knife. He can run the ball. He can catch the ball. He can return kicks. He can return punts. He can play cornerback. He can play in the secondary. And so I think. The way the league is trending today, you want a lot of those versatile type of guys. Guys that can do a lot of different things on your football team. And so for the 2020 Bears, put George McAfee on there for me. Yeah, I like McAfee playing cornerback. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I'm good with that answer. I mean, you don't want it to be necessarily the same answer as both, uh, but I honestly think both work. I think you could take Ken Kavanaugh, and if if maybe Kavanaugh could play tight end, in this offense in 2020, mm. I think maybe you'd take mm-hmm. that as well. He's not, he's 6'3, so it's not like he's short or anything like that. You know, a lot of these guys from this era, you know, six foot or something like that. So he's, you know, he's he's on the taller end for the era, and he's maybe on the shorter end for a tight end now. But I think 6'3 could play, bulk him up a little bit so he'd be okay in the blocking game. But, you know, he's from the 40s. I'm sure he knows how to block. So, <laughs> absolutely. And, and we know he knows how to catch. Uh, he's got 50 touchdowns in his career. So I, I think Ken Cavanaugh might be my choice for this era. What about from the modern era bears that you would like to take back? Now, obviously, this this decade, they're so successful. So it's like, you know, who are you taking back um, that's really going to make that big of a difference? But who would you have, Erlacher, Tillman, or Hester to take back? I'm going Erlacher this time. Yeah. Because this is the full-blown Monsters of the Midway era. And I think Erlacher personifies that to a T. And so I'm throwing Erlacher back there because he can play anywhere on defense. And you can put him in on the end on offense. He can hand the ball. Uh, he would fit in seamlessly. Can you imagine watching him and Sprinkle just terrorize people all day? It would be amazing to watch Jeff. So I'm going Erlacher. Yeah, I think that's that's the answer. I think you can make an argument for Tillman. But again, kind of what we're talking about with that 06 bringing up McAfee, you're not necessarily going to take back Hester because he's already going to be a bit redundant. And so I think for me, I'm going to put Erlacher in there and just see what that speed can do. So uh, we're in agreement there. Uh, last question, my favorite question, who won the decade? Jeff, my answer is the Bears franchise. This is their greatest decade in terms of success. This is the greatest decade in terms of championships. This is where they become, Jeff, the monsters of the midway. That nickname is still around today. You hear it on TV broadcasts about the Bears all the time. It, it gets invi- it gets brought back every time we have a really good team. And so I don't I didn't want to pick a person because 
there's so many great people from this decade. So I'm going the franchise. This is when the NFL is becoming more of the modern NFL. And the Bears are the one who were transitioning in. And the Chicago Bears, Jeff, are the team that takes it from the rugby matches to something that resembles what we have today. And the Bears were the team that did that. And I didn't know about that until researching this decade. And so I'm very proud to be a Bears fan because it really sounds like to me we made the game more modern. And so I'm going with the Bears win the decade. All right. So my answer isn't actually that far off because I I kind of thought that you would make the Luckman argument. Okay. Okay. And so I wanted to push myself to make a different argument than Luckman because I think if, if we're going to pick a player, it's Luckman. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we can put that down, Luckman, as the player wins the decade. But it doesn't have to be a player. And so my case was for the T formation. Nice. And the T formation basically begins its dominance in 1940 and by the end of the decade has taken over the entire football world. It's immortalized in Bear Down Chicago Bears. Mm -hmm. We'll never forget the way you thrilled the nation with your T formation. And this is the winner for the decade for me is the T formation and how it proliferates throughout the 1940s and absolutely changes football forever. Can't argue with that. All right, that's it. That's the 1940s. So join us next time. We'll cover the 1950s. Don't forget to keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find me at GridironBorn. And until next time, enjoy this 1940s era victory parade song to celebrate all those Bears championships. Bear down. to do's less time and an infinite number of tools to keep track of sometimes doing business has never felt harder but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals you can just use hubspot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier imagine this high quality leads fast closing deals wildly happy customers and more benchmark breaking quarters it's not a miracle it's hubspot visit hubspot.com to get started today